Brandon Addison. This is Learning to Lead with Heart. Well, uh, some other folks are coming in. They're still on the lunch line. Um, and I'll start in a minute. I'll be curious, and I actually love this as a smaller room, because what, what we do when leading with heart and talking about it, it's like a relational process. It's not an intellectual process. And when you look even in this room, it looks like a hotel ballroom a little bit, like I'm about to sell Cutco knives. And for 19.95, just, just you wait, there's more. You get another one. And, um, it's, I'm the expert and you receive from me. But I want to hear this. Um, part of what we're going to be talking about is how COVID has affected us, our lives, and our ministries. And I'm just curious, anybody wants to jump in, like, what's changed? What's good? What's hard coming out of COVID? Hmm. Well, we didn't have an online ministry before COVID. You didn't have, yeah, yes. And now we have one. Yes. It added a layer of complexity. You had to learn Zoom or whatever, whatever platform you're using. Yes. And now the question, too, is like, when do we actually power down the online ministry? No, don't. Yeah. No, there. And then, and then, like, what does that do, like, ecclesially? You know, like, are we actually, like, enabling people or actually providing space? You know, it's a whole gray area as well. That's the conversation that's going on there. You know, like, yep. What else? It's back to the heart. Well, if you care about it, you know, there's one person online, shouldn't you stay online? Yeah, yeah. Or, or then we get codependent, which is like, I'm going to make them okay, so I'll, I'll keep on Zoom, even though recession says we shouldn't do it. But there's Aunt Sally's over there, and she really likes it, so we get in those issues. Well, yeah. we, have, we actually do the phone element, too. You say, sorry, what'd you say? Phone element? Yeah. Your phone screaming for some of our sweet elderly folks who don't have computers to yep. Yep. They're stuck at home. They have no access to stuff other yeah. than their phone rings at 9.30 on Sunday yeah. morning and they're worshiping. Yeah. Oh, wow. it's, that's great. And we talk about like shut-ins and widows and yeah. like we have a confessional responsibility to them. Like yeah. that's a great reason. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's one of, those little, that's great. one of those ladies who loves communion. Yep. And so when we've been doing communion live, yep. we cut off our live stream at the point of communion. Yeah. So just those there are communion. Mm-hmm. But if there are people who want home communion, at this moment, communion is a huge part of our sure. She's listening on the phone, so she's worshiping with us, mm-hmm. and then we take communion to her. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. We did communion at home with the bring your own bread. Yeah. <laughs> communion in a box. But yeah, it's, it's a great question. Like even, so COVID's changing how we think about church. Um, wh- how do we properly administer the sacraments? Um, how do we gather? How do we disciple? And the adaptive issues, what we call adaptive leadership issues, are stuff to, that are not necessarily quick technical fixes. Um, they compound in the midst of this. And part of the issue too, what, what I want to speak about this, like we, we say, and if you read anything from Jonathan Dobbs about a year ago, wrote a book, not a book, but an article called The Coming Pastoral Crash. Tim Keller, who kind of re- referenced this coming out of um, 9-11, somebody called him and said, during the, the Tulsa bombings and go, hey, just wait. In 18 months, you're going to see a lot of fatigue. In seven, eight, nine days, like the two weeks vacation study leave isn't going to cut it. And he didn't believe it and he saw it happen. And so part of that, even having a conversation like this, is trying to skate ahead of the curve. Um, but let me kind of jump in with some things. Uh, you know, Brandon Addison, I'm a lead pastor. I, I pastor in Denver, Colorado. And so I've been there five years by way of, of Nashville. Um, five years in the EPC. Love the EPC family, charitable family. Uh, really enjoy being here with all, all the benefits and, and freedom. And I think the, the, even the ethos we have in this is what the world really hungers for. How do we hold uniqueness together and actually be peaceable and love one another about it? I also uh, do some guiding with, with Tin Man um, Ministries. Uh, I'll talk about Tin Man in a minute, but Tin Man is a, a ministry. We're, we're faith-based. We work with uh, executives, pastors, leaders. Uh, a lot of it is uh, when you get past your 20s, you're no longer dealing with intellectual issues and blockages. You still have a lot to learn. Pastors are still buying a lot of books, right? Like books are the pastor's whiskey, so to speak. But all the challenges typically are emotional. And how do you navigate the emotional processes? Um, and uh, really, it's, it's, it's best uh, explained by the story of the Tin Man. Now, Mass Confession, has anybody ever read the book, The Wizard of Oz? One, it's a really difficult book to read. It's really 
hard writing. The movie's based upon it, but uh, the story of the Tin Man is, is unique in the book. The story of the Tin Man is a tin's wood, woodsman, and he has this dream. His dream is actually to marry a munchkin girl, as funny as that sounds, and then go make a life with her. And so he goes out into the woods and starts chopping wood. He's got this vision and this anger of what for life could be. But here's the catch, is the Wicked Witch of the West, she curses the axe. And so he's chopping wood and chopping wood and he cuts off part of his arm. So he goes to the tin smith and they put a, put a tin arm on. But then it happens again and again and again. And finally, his head's cut off, his legs are cut off, his arms are cut off, but he's kind of loving it because what he can do, he can go out into the woods and he can chop and he can make things happen. He can go for it, his muscles don't fatigue. And the last thing um, that the tinsmith says is, hey, take care of yourself. And then it rains. So the, the tin man's here. He's forgotten his purpose, forgotten his passion, forgotten even why he's out in the woods. He's just a robot, a machine, going after it, making things happen. And then all of a sudden, he freezes up. And that's when you see him in the movie. He's kind of like, oil me, you know, like just like under the middle, kind of hang, hanging out there. And um, part of the work we do with Tin Man is we find leaders for some, some way they've been into ministry, they've been hacking it, and they've lost their why a little bit. They haven't taken care of themselves, and they're kind of like the Tin Man. They're just kind of going through the motions, so to speak. Um, it's a little bit of a story of my life. I won't give you uh, the, the whole story here since we've just met, but part of my life was um, a church planner in another denomination, uh, achieved really well, um, started a church in Nashville, got invited to uh, incubate with uh, Tim Keller in New York. So that means in my denomination, I got kissed by the Pope, like our father who art in Manhattan. That's a funny pastor joke. Come on. I deserve a little more laughter than that. that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I got pastor jab jokes all, all day long. Um, and, and then I start doing that. And I think with church planning, like you're, you're hustling, you're, you're going after it, you're making it. And then b- below the line, which we talk about what's going on, is I got two kids. Uh, my marriage is passable. It's like probably a six on the test. It passes the church test, but we want more. But then my dad gets cancer and my mom gets addicted to opioid drugs. And so I'm doing interventions with her. And what I typically do in life is I go and just get more things done. I make people okay. I perform. I achieve. And I go back and throw my fastball, and it's not there. And all of a sudden, it hadn't been at this point in my life. Like, walk me back into my journey. Help me recover some of the things I've lost along the way. Like, sadness, loneliness, anger, shame. All these things that... And I've discovered, like, basically, I've been performing. Identity-based performance. And that's trying to keep me away from some of these other things, how I'm wired. And through the process, six, seven years working with Tin Man, I I help guys do the same thing in a variety of different ways. So Microsoft executives, lead pastors, the best thing I'm doing, I I can't tell all the stories because they're confidential, but I have a Japanese church planner process group based out of Soma. They're all in Japan, and it's phenomenal what they're doing. So it's it's really, really fun. But that's kind of what what Tin Man is. What we say is um, in Proverbs, the purpose of a man's heart is deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. And we're simply here to help draw out men and women's hearts. I didn't mention, even though it's 10 men, we have women on staff as well. We have ordained pastors, counselors, recovery coaches. We just try to serve the body of Christ that way. But that's not why you're here. It's not, that was not meant to be a 10-man commercial. You can look it up, 10man.life. Um, uh, we're not the, the only thing in town. We're just part of the solution, but it's fun. Like, you know, we serve about... I think 450 clients a week. We're in 40 states, six different countries, so it's it's fun. One-on-one, intensives, and then and then groups as well. Great website. Great website. I thought it was a great website. Yeah, great. Yeah, good website. Yeah, go check out the website for sure. Yep. Yeah, you can get more info there. Uh, why are you doing this? All right, we're going to talk uh, briefly. This is where we're going today. Like theology of the heart. I'm a pastor, and I got a little bit of shame over this neuroscience. Like what we've learned. And you can go, I'm not a scientist, so like I'll, I'll hold that, but I think there's some cool things there. And then I'm going to give you some tools. But here's the catch, okay, as pastors. You can't use these tools in sermons. This is not for your psalm series. Like, this is for you. Can we, can we own that just for a second? Like, you know what it says in the plane? Like, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on other people. And what I find out is pastors are trying to make everybody else okay. They're putting oxygen mask on everybody else. Are you okay with me? And then all of a sudden, they crash in the middle of the plane. We don't want to do that. And also, I know this is being recorded, and there's about a photo be taken of me as I say this, but um, pastors are content whores. 
what they want to do is they scrounge for content to get their next thing, and they never actually let it enter into themselves. So can we just kind of like let this be for us today a little bit? Is that okay? Got some permission there? Let this be for you. Um, uh, and secondly, I want to say out of humility, like I'm not the guru, I'm not the expert, I'm just kind of walking alongside. I want to give, you, give some things out of the process too. Uh, third thing, just listen for resonance. Whatever resonates with you, it's coming from a deeper part of the brain. It's actually the limbic brain. It's not the prefrontal cortex. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, theology of the heart. When we think about the heart, what do we typically think of? Love. What, you say love? Yeah, 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 love. Like, like the center of your, of your being. Yeah, center of your being, yeah. Um, my, my daughter gave me a, a heart for Father's Day, and it said, I love you, Daddy. You make the best pancakes, and you flagellate. That's what she liked. I'm, I'm, that's what the two things she acknowledged me for, which I kind of found uh, healthily uh, or funny, you know. Um, Passions, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're getting, we're kind of understanding that, right? Like, the Hebrews did not have a word for brain, and so they used the word lev, which was heart. And it was a much bigger category than just what's going on uh, with thinking or what's going on with feeling. It's much bigger than Hallmark cards, you know. And hearts mentioned over and over and over and over again. Um, one of the places I love to go is the Shema, and then in Mark. But since we're pastors here, what do we remember about the Shema? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Write it on the, your doorpost as you go out, you're in and out. And part of that was totality. Like, I, I would even argue that's not just about, like, worship God with your all. It's actually, will you fully relationally attach to God? Like, he's a covenantal God. He's with you. He's got hested love. Will you bring all of yourself to him and trust him? It's not an intellectual worship. It's actually a, a holistic embodying. But uh, Jesus restates this here. And so um, basically a restatement of the Shema. And one of the scribes came and then heard them raising it together. And perceiving them, he had answered them well and asked them, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus said, the first commandment is, and this is a restatement of the Shah, which is uh, the Shema. What was your name again? What Harper just like threw down for us, like Deuteronomy 5. Um, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Um, soul's nephesh, that's that place that animates our inner being. It's not just physical, it's actually what makes us move. We know what mind is, of course, strength, but he uses this word cardia. And that's what we're kind of getting at here. The Greek word of cardia isn't simply feeling, but it's much bigger and broader than that. And what, what, it's what emanates the person. Uh, this is what a couple commentators say, just to kind of get you thinking intellectually so you know I'm not crazy. Um, it says, the heart was essentially the whole man with all his attributes, physical, intellectual, psychological, of which the Hebrew thought and spoke. And the heart was conceived as the governing center for all of these. The CEO suite of the human being is the way I say it. Character, person, personality, will, and mind, or modern terms, all reflect something of the meaning of heart and its biblical usage. It's the core of which makes and identifies the person. Makes sense so far? Not necessarily new, but different than what we typically think about in modern society. Just one more here. Uh, it's kind of getting to the comprehensive nature of the heart. It's not how we look or what status or position we have or what we've accomplished or even what others think of us that determines who we really are. True knowledge comes from looking inward at the thoughts and attitudes that reside deep in the heart. Since the real identity of a person is his heart, the heart often equals the person. So we talk about leading with heart. We're not just talking about feelings, even though feelings really matter, and we'll get to that. We're talking about the totality of what's occurring. So quick theology of the heart. Um, I'm gonna make a hard left turn here. Well, one thing here. Uh, this is a good thing to think through. Maybe if it works. Oh, that's what I wanted. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Now I just broke it. <laughs> All right, one more. There it is. Okay, perfect. There it is. All right, good. Thanks, Steve Jobs. All right. Um, when we think about how we lead, or the 
it doesn't matter where you are, if you're in ministry, if you're an executive, if you're a ruling elder or a teaching elder. Even though the heart, mind, soul, and strength are meant to be integrated, typically we lead with the top 10% of that. Um, we lead with our mind, we lead with our strength. Think about our, my preaching classes back in seminary. You know, they're great. I went to Covenant Seminary. I loved my seminary education. Boy, did they teach me a lot of theology and how to communicate it with illustrations and then to bring my energy into the church. But all this other stuff, like the deeper water of heart and soul, the more vulnerable things, the things what we call below the waterline, typically we don't think are valued or we don't know how to integrate. And so what happens in pastoral ministry, if you're not aware, is one of the vocational liabilities is loneliness. Tracking with me? like because. Everybody kind of knows me because I give like a really good illustration and they laugh and they think I'm attached. They're attached to me, but nobody's attuned to me. And so I'm really, really lonely in my congregation. And here's the catch too. Okay. Um, who believes in a gospel of need? Right? Raise your hand. That's everybody. Who wants to be needy in their congregation? <laughs> Huge disconnect. Because we proclaim a gospel of need and dependency, but we don't think we can be needy and dependent. And actually, our need is what actually is what is what's right about us, not what's wrong about us. So there's something that needs to happen below the waterline, and let people know what's really going on inside of us. What we talk about, Tin Man, is feel your feelings, tell the truth, and trust the process. Tell the truth about what's going on inside here. Don't just lead out of here, so to speak. And I think the question right now would be like, you know, can you go below the water waterline? Do you have people in your life? You're, are you even aware of what's below the waterline? Sometimes we don't know what's occurring. All right. That's theology of the heart. Can I talk a little bit about the neuroscience, knowing I'm not a neuroscientist real quick? Um, but this is what's kind of cool. Uh, what archaeology has done to, to biblical trustworthiness, you know, what's been unique is Everything that we've unearthed in ancient Israel has only confirmed the beauty of the Bible. Like, I, I think of the Pool of Bethesda. It was one of the leading things. Like, you could never find it. They could never find it. They thought, um, oh, the Bible m must not be true. And then you know what happened like 10 years ago? Is they found it. It was underneath the church um, and confirming what was going on there. So, you know, archaeology is only confirming uh, the Bible. What that's been going on for the last 50 years, I think we're just now discovering in neuroscience. There's a lot of cool things occurring with our understanding of the brain and how we're wired and made. And it's not surprising because God talks about it in unique ways. It's just the image of God, how we're all wired in his image. And we're beginning to discover, discover some things here. All right. Here's a pastor's understanding of a brain. Oh. Pastor's understanding of your brain, real quick. Um, Three parts. The very back is the brainstem. Every animal in the animal kingdom has a, has a brainstem. It's the reptilian brain. It's the lizard brain. Like if a lizard walked in this room, it's like, are you food? Are you enemy? Am I going to eat you or are you going to eat me? I don't know. That's, they're not like, oh, man, my kids, you know, they're really struggling and i got to pay the Excel bill. The lizard brain's not thinking about that. That's lizard brain, like instinctual. You know, like, are you food? Are you going to eat me? Are you not going to eat me, so to speak? All right. Uh, second part of the brain, they call the middle brain or the, the limbic brain. Uh, that's the emotional and feeling center of your brain. In fact, what they say when you're born as a child, the limbic brain is 95 to 98% complete. So even though a child doesn't have a voice of their feelings, they're feeling everything already going on. And if you have young kids, even though they may not, like, know how to speak yet, they know how to be needy. They know how to tell you they're sad, they're mad, they're angry, they're afraid. Uh, the limbic brain's also uh, where the five senses integrate. Um, also, the limbic brain doesn't know time. So the limbic brain, it doesn't, the limbic brain doesn't know if you're 55 or five. You ever like, that's why people like who've been in Vietnam hear a firecracker, and all of a sudden they're like back in Vietnam 20 years ago, that's the limbic brain. You ever like asked a question to somebody and you felt really young in the process? Like I felt really like, like nine or 10 years old. That's limbic brain stuff that's going on here. That's actually what's occurring. Um, that's where trauma is stored, typically, limbic brain, deep stuff, deep-seated. That's what people do, um, EMDR and other things like that. And then what we have is your uh, neocortex or prefrontal cortex, the whole top here, like seminary brain is what I call it. 
this thing isn't fully complete till you're like 28 or 29, you know? Like I remember when I was 18, 19, I'd like go ski and go as fast as I can. And now being in my thirties, I start skiing and I'm like, my insurance is a little too high. I don't want healthcare premiums. That's why honestly, if you're a fighter pilot, if you want to stay, eventually you're going to become an instructor because you can't handle like the risk and the danger that you're doing, your brain's going to develop. Um, also, part of the prefrontal cortex is the bacchus, and that's where the speaking function is. Now, that doesn't come till later on, but you're born with this longing, desiring, emotional space. Is that making sense so far? Like, we feel before we think. In fact, if you want to read a couple books on this, you can. Um, uh, there's one called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. It's a popular book, Intuition. Another good one, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt talk about why good people disagree about religion and politics, you can just read the first chapter on it. It talks about the elephant and the rider. And it says, you know what the, the rider, you, you got the picture, right? The elephant's just like bumbling somewhere and the rider's just along for the ride. He says, the elephant are your feelings, your emotions. Like we feel, then we intuit. Um, uh, Jim Wilder, who's a neurotheologian, which he's actually in Colorado, he's, he's a fascinating guy. He wrote a book called Renovated, basically the, the last part of Dallas Willard's life. And he says the same thing too. It's like your attachment part of the brain goes faster than your rational part of the brain. It's something to catch up with. So we feel first, then we intuit. Um, but as pastors, ministry leaders, adults, what do we, what do we typically do? What have we been taught about like emotions and feelings? Hide them, yes. Deceitful above all things. Don't trust them. Do you hear that? The heart is deceitful above all things. Heart of stone, heart of flesh, yep. Yeah. But our culture says just the opposite. Mm. Well, yeah. They yeah, so that's, that's something we'll talk about too. So like in the Christian faith, um, what, we, what we feel isn't true. That's not it. It's an ultimate truth. But if we're spiritual, physical, emotional beings, that's psychosomatic unions, where, is our, where are our emotions leading us? Dependence upon God, neediness on others, the gift, or are they just making us being self-fulfillment? So the question is, where do our emotions lead us? Because they're taking us somewhere. So yeah, I, I love you guys are already picking up on things too. And man, I wish you could spend time talking about the heart and like um, the role of feelings and self-fulfillment and autonomy, because that's all my Colorado world, right? Oh, what I feel is true. God is in the mountains. I'm like, bro, we got some work to do with you. I got some anger over that. So I just got to keep it focused, so to speak. But please come talk to me about some of this stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on. What drives the train? What drives a train? Yep. So have you guys heard this? is like a famous crew analogy. It's uh, what drives it, what's the engine is fact. And then what comes from fact is faith. And then the last thing is feeling. And if you base your lives on feeling, it's going to be a bumpy ride. But what we find out, like, um, go read Matthew 26 again, the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus, he's fully human, fully divine. He had a ton of feelings. He's lonely. His disciples won't be there with him. He's sad and afraid, like, let this cup pass. And then finally, he's, he's got some anger. He's got some healthy anger and some passion. He's like willing to go to the cross for people. Like Jesus got a lot of healthy anger, which we'll talk about. Like we got to recover some of those things. This is it in Jesus's life. Yeah, and some of that cultural as well. I mean, we as Western Americans have placed a lot of emphasis on rationalism and so thinking. And we got to get our facts in order first. But you go to other cultures. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, 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 man, I'll tell, absolutely, we could talk about that and riff on that, but yeah, there's, um, the enlightenment wasn't like the pinnacle of God's church. Like Jesus didn't come in the enlightenment. The enlightenment says what I think, therefore I am. And so we have, we think if we get it clear here, we'll know it. And can, can I riff a little bit and then I'll get to other things? This is like, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm convinced of this. And then by the way, I, I, I speak more confident than I am, so divide what I say by four, but um, story, a real quick story. I met with a mega church pastor in my town and he stepped me down and we, it was one of these guys where it was like, Hey, you need to meet this guy. You need to meet, you meet this guy. You need to meet this guy. And I sit down with him. The first thing he says is tell me your story. And I'm like, that's such a lazy question. 
And the reason it's a lazy question is the assumption. The assumption is, if I give a bunch of data about my life, you'll feel attached to me, which is fundamentally not true. That's why church small groups never work that way. Like you tell your life story for 10 minutes and then you have a hug and then three months later you don't care about one another. Like, you know, like it doesn't work. What actually works of attachment is attunement, being aware of each other and where you are and what you need. It's a deeper know, part of knowing. Um, anyway, like there's recovery, the limbic brain and integration is what we're kind of talking about with neuroscience here. Um, we feel and then we think. All right. Any other questions on that real quick? Right. Yeah. One other comment. I think yeah, that please. What made us different as men and women. My husband and I have these great conversations where um, he's kind of semi-retired right now, so he has time to go and have lunch with friends and stuff. So he'll come home and, and we'll compare his lunch with a guy friend and my lunch. And he'll say, first of all, you're just like three times longer. And I said, well, women talk. I mean, we have, what, what's the number, 25,000 words to men. So when we're having lunch with somebody, if you're my female friend and I'm having lunch with you and like, how's things going, you're going to really share a lot more and those are going to be feelings oriented. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have that real connection with you. So I think, you know, there's a difference um, between men and women, mm -hmm. you know, in that. So yeah. we, we, are, we are, I don't want to say more open, but more words and well, we, we need that connection. I, we need that compassion and empathy and that relationship with our women friends. So. Mm -hmm. so have longer lunches, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. But I'm, I like being really efficient. You know, I don't know. I don't want. Well, yeah. So any, any questions before we kind of move on about some things we do, at least some tools we do at 10 men? Um, all right, I'll give you one of them. Again, this is for you. Uh, if anything connects, let us know, you know, but um, well, here's some things that we, we tell our clients, just, just so you know, and other people, um, that'll get to it. We say, uh, especially when guys like start using some of this, it's like the best thing you can do is you're a giraffe on ice, like talking about emotions and feelings and heart and soul, which is really awkward and goofy and weird and messy. And I'm talking about my sadness and my fear, like you just gotta be messy with it. That's like human. Right? Like, be a giraffe on ice. Um, we tell our guys to bring our insides to the outside. So there's a difference. And the difference is you see somebody's outsides and you begin to try to tell a story about their insides. It's called codependency. Like, I'm only okay if you're okay. You ever been preaching and you're seeing people out there and all of a sudden you see the sleeper and you're telling a story about yourself, about like they're not, they're not in tune to it? So instead of trying to read people's insides, we just bring our, bring our heart to the table. We tell what's going on with us. Um, willing to be vulnerable over transparent. I won't get into that. Vulnerable is willingness to be wounded. You're in charge of your vulnerability. Let the armor off. Transparency is calculated. Pastors are notorious at that. You can give like the, the two snippets and nobody knows you. Um, courageously do our own work. I want to do a whole um, session on the beauty of human need. Like neediness isn't what that disqualifies us from the gospel. It actually is the gospel. So that's why Jesus talks about little children all the time. Let the little children come to me. Um, Ma um, what, Matthew 7, if you ask for a fish, why would your father give you a serpent? So ask what your father will, what you need, your father will give it to you. Like be needy. Um, in the garden of good and evil, perfect world, yet there's a tree in the middle of the garden in Eden. It was to remind Adam and Eve of their need. Like, you need God. Even in a perfect world, there's need. There's a recovery of beauty of need. So we talk a lot, of, a lot about it to a man. Like, we just be needy? Like, not like codependent, but like, I have feelings and I have needs. That's what's right about you. Um, uh, stop confusing intensity for intimacy. That's, that's a whole different category. I'll leave that there. Um, and we'll call feel the feelings, tell the truth, and trust, trust God with the rest. So what I'm going to give you is one of the things we, we use. If you're interested in this, um, it's from P.M. Murray in the 50s. Chip Dodd wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart. There's also a Bible study uh, that goes deeper in each one. Jeff Schulting and Phil Herden. There's also some other stuff up here. Um, so real quick. And by the way, if you're taking photos, it's for you. Like, you know, it's fine. Just I don't want to see this like on your church website or anything like that. All right. Um, <laughs> And you can't do this with your psalm series in the summer because it's good to do psalms. But so there's eight core emotions 
And uh, one thing you might be thinking here is, I see those eight in the middle. Hurt, lonely, sad, anger, fear, shame, guilt, glad. Why is only one positive? And what I would say to you is, where did you learn those were negative? Because that's coming with some family of origin, some story, some interpretation. What we say, if we're spiritual, physical, emotional beings, we have feelings. We know it. The limbic brain fires first, and then the prefrontal cortex. And all depends on what, where we take it, take with it. Other, others of you might go, hey, like there's only a, where's, where are others? And all we say is, like, this is the most intuitive tool we found over the course of study and history and, and research. You can argue in six months is there a nine, a nine or ten emotion. But the, the goal isn't to get all the emotions, it's actually to use some of these. Make sense so far? Um, so I'm going to do a quick, like, down and dirty on some of these and talk through it. I usually spend like an hour with a client talking through some of these. And I just want you to see, is anything resonate? And we can talk about it real quick. Okay. Um, the first one, hurt. Hurt is a feeling that something happened to me. Um, you think about how we use hurt. It was a spear to the gut. Uh, the wind was knocked out in front of me. Uh, the rug was pulled out underneath my feet. I was crushed. I was betrayed. That's hurt. Hurt is a feeling that typically has the most residue. Like, even though it might have been 5, 10, 20, 25 years ago, it's somewhere back in the limbic brain. And the limbic brain doesn't know linear time. So if, if, if you're six years six, the limbic brain just knows something happened to me. And it hurts. The impairment of hurts resentment. That means you want somebody else to feel the hurt that you're made to feel. Hurt people hurt people. And eventually when, you, when resentment doesn't work, you go to revenge. And that's like drinking your own poison and expect somebody else to die, so to speak. I think Augustine said that. That's where resentment goes. The gift of hurt is healing and courage. Healing is, uh, first courage is, hey, I need a name. Healing is reaching out for other people and God to heal. In fact, what they've done studies with it with Christian counselors and psychologists. There's a great podcast called The Place We Find Ourselves. Adam Young, he says the only way, when you tell your story of hurt in a community of grace and trust, it actually rewires the brain, like renewing of the mind. Like when you tell your story of hurt within trust, it actually can do things. That's healing. Hurt. Uh, lonely. Uh, lonely, what I say, is not something that's wrong about us. It's right about us. In the Garden of Eden, it's not good for man to be alone. Um, we're made in God's image, eternal community. Lonely is a feeling for us to reach out into relationship. That's why lonely was given to us. Typically, we're lonely for things. We say lonely for God, lonely for others, lonely for ourselves, or lonely for heaven. Those are the four things we're lonely for. That's where loneliness drives us to. The impairment of loneliness is apathy. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. Nothing's going to change. Why even bother? Why risk? Apathy. Let me just watch Netflix and let it go. Everybody tracking so far? I'm like blank face. Okay, good. Okay. Got some, either you guys are processing or like, hey, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get out of here. Okay, great. Um, Sadness. Uh, sadness is a feeling that shows us that something was valuable to us. It mattered to us. Tears, true tears, aren't something to be wiped away or minimized. We might have had words about our tears growing up. Tears shows us what matters about us, about loss. The gift of sadness is, ac is acceptance. Hey, that mattered to me. That was important to me. Uh, I remember when I moved from Nashville to Denver, um, my son and his best friend, they were born seven days apart. Carter and Aiden, playing together all the time. We get everything packed up. The U-Haul's packed up. They're sitting on the back deck, and they're hugging one another, like deep embrace and crying their eyes out. And that's, the thing, that's not like something minimal or like get over it. That's beautiful. You know why? That means like Carter mattered to Aiden, and Aiden, Aiden mattered to Carter. When you when have tears, it shows us that something matters to us. It's part of like dropping in humanity, you know, like Jesus weeping over Lazarus and then getting really angry over it. It mattered to him. So beautiful part of the humanity. Anger. Um, I do a lot of work with men around 
anger. I can't go into this. I think we have a whole lot of rage in our culture. Anger and rage are different and diametrically opposed. And I'll talk about that briefly. There's a gift to anger that we need to recover. But the impairment of anger is depression. Uh, this is muting your life. It's pushing the beach ball of your passions underwater. It's measuring your heart. It's uh, muting your passion. It's playing it safe. That's the impairment of anger. The gift of anger is passion. Healthy anger shows what you're willing to fight for. Uh, healthy anger shows you what you're willing to take on pain for greater than the sake of pain. Jesus in the garden had to, had to have a lot of anger to go to the cross. That means he had passion. Uh, what we say is, what are you angry for? Where's the injustice? Not angry at. Bad things happen when you're angry at. That leads to resentment and frustration. Angry for is like, what am I to fight for? Um, even in the Bible, it doesn't say anger is a sin. It says, in your anger, do not sin. But we need a whole lot of more healthy anger. And we need some resources for Christians to recover that type of anger. That passion is what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Any questions or thoughts on that one? You can distrust the process too and push back on me later on, but I think there's a lot, a lot of things there. You know, um, let me talk about like anger is different than rage. Rage is based upon fear. Rage is like, I'm going to shut things down. We can't have that conversation. It sounds like anger, but actually, it's actually based upon fear. Like, I'm afraid something's going to happen. I want to control situations. Whole lot of rage going on culturally. Cancer culture is based upon rage and fear, not anger. It sounds like anger, but it's not anger. Um, fear. So uh, the last four, fear. Um, fear shows us like wisdom and faith. Like, who do I need? Where can God meet me in this? Where do I go to him? Uh, where do I need to trust? That's where it should drive us to. The impairment of fear is anxiety. It's what I call the spinning apple death wheel. You know, over-processing, over-processing, over-processing. Brene Brown calls it dress-rehearsing tragedy. Like, your contingency plans have contingency plans. And those contingency plans have some plans underneath just in case, you know, or... Uh, you get life on a chessboard, and you're always three steps ahead from somebody else, some plan, you know. That's, that's fear. That's that fear response. And by the way, you get, you get in fear, and you can't live in the moment. You can't be present to God and others, because you're always, like, got this hum, you know. Uh, we talk about being a duck underwater, you know. Clean on the outside, underwater. Almost every pastor I know, by the way, you know, trying to figure it all out. Um, shame, guilt, glad. Uh, anybody heard of Brene Brown by the chance? She's like, yeah, okay. I say this with humility. I'm really grateful for, for Brene Brown. I think this has got a more biblical bent to it. And so let's think biblically, not just Brene. And if you don't know Brene, it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, yeah, there's ties for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I really appreciate her. It's given us language. But sometimes I got to, like, recouch this. But shame. Okay. Shame. We all know shame. If you don't think you have shame, you have it. <laughs> like, shame is usually the base liquor. If toxic shame is the base liquor of other bad stuff going on. If you drill down further enough, you're going to find some shame. Let me talk about the gift of shame. The gift of shame is humility. The gift of shame is limitations. Healthy shame is, I'm not God, neither are you. I need others, so do you. I don't have the answers, neither do you. I mean, I said healthy shame earlier a couple times when I go, I'm not a neurotheologian or neuroscientist. I wasn't shaming myself, I was just naming my limitations. Like, even in the garden, we had limitations. That's healthy shame. Like, falling into our limitations. We say humility, that comes from the Latin word humilitas. That just means to be grounded, to walk upon the ground, to embrace the fullness of your humanity. And all the glories are made in the image of God and all the limitations, you know? That's the gift of shame. The impairment of shame is toxic shame and contempt. Toxic shame, um, and by the way, toxic shame, what it does it, what, I, what I argue, it erodes the Imago Dei within us. Toxic shame says, I'm a mistake, I'm flawed, I always do this. And it, it tries to root out our uniqueness. Toxic shame makes us play small and always become internally focused. 
Um, or we, we go to contempt, which is we basically just continue to shut the door on ourselves. If you're an Enneagram one, that deep voice of inner criticism, is usually toxic shame and contempt. Shame and guilt are different. Um, uh, shame is more based upon identity. Guilt is based upon action. Uh, the gift of guilt. And this is the best thing, by the way, that I've discovered as parenting. The, the best news I had for healthy attachment with kids is this, is you gotta get it right 50% of the time. Like, like D minus 50% of the time. And they don't need your perfection, actually what they need is your repair. They don't need you to be the perfect dad, go to the baseball games. When you blow it, when your anger comes out sideways, you just need to apologize. That's why guilt is given to us, by the way. Guilt is given to us to reach out for freedom and forgiveness. Say, like, I did this wrong, I'm so sorry. Forgiveness for God, freedom to be absolved, the opportunity for somebody to meet you in your guilt, not for you to hold it all in. Um, you know, that's why it's given to us. It's not, it's not meant to be stored up, to stoop down. It's meant to you to reach out for freedom and forgiveness. Uh, the impairment, or what we call the flesh side of guilt, is toxic shame and pride. Toxic shame. Like, I'm a mistake. I always do this. I can't believe it. You know, shut the door on yourself. Pride is, uh, like, there's nothing wrong with me. It's like, the, that's where, like, shamelessness comes in. That's like where narcissism comes in. Like, you have so much pride, you no longer feel guilt. It's always everybody else's problem. Uh, if you meet a narcissist, usually they have something going on here because they don't feel that. All right. Finally, uh, gladness. Uh, gladness is a result of the other emotions. It's gladness is feeling the other things. Uh, the impairment of gladness, I call it sensuous or sensual pleasure without heart. I simply call it going to Vegas with my clients. Like, uh, you drink whatever you want to drink, whatever, you know, you want to buy whatever you want to buy. Like, my family grew up in New Orleans, and so they would take me to Mardi Gras when I was fourth and fifth grade. I saw a whole lot of that, but even the term vacation, think about the term vacation. Vacation is I need to vacate my life. I need to rest. And sometimes on vacation, what we do is like, we're just trying to like get away a little bit. What we say gladness has a, has a deeper weight to it. It's, you can like talking about your loneliness, talk about what happened growing up and people are with you. And you're like, I got a lot of joy that people are with me, but I'm also really sad about what happened to me. It's just got more weight to it. It's more experiential. Josh, can I put you on the spot, like with gladness? Anything there that kind of makes that a little more concrete? Um, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about um, about this experience with the German word Zenzu, um, which he kind of translated as the joy of longing. Um, that you can't experience the depth of joy without having a container for that joy created through suffering. And I, I think that's, that's been my experience, that the, the, the deepest and most profound joys that I've experienced have been the result of uh, what Tolkien called eucatastrophe, like the, the sudden dramatic reversal of a great loss mm. and a deep pain. Mm. Uh, that's all I got on that on the spot. That was really good on the spot, by the way. <laughs> you brought in Tolkien and Lewis and used eucatastrophe. So. He's really smart. Word. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, let's do this. I mean, uh, and this is in a book, The Voice of the Heart. We spend a lot of time with people walking through this because it's not about an intellectual understanding. It's actually using some of this. But questions, thoughts, where do you see yourself? I'd love for you to jump in there. Like, you know, which one's your backhand, so to speak? You know, we usually always play with one club when we're like playing golf. Which one, which, which one do you not use? <clears throat> You know, what was uh, striking to me was the idea of uh, hurt and talking about the brain and how you know, it has no idea of time. Mm -hmm. I'm severely dyslexic. <laughs> so every time I, I'm up there to read the scripture, I'm like I'm six again, mm -hmm. trying to read out loud in class. Yeah. And I'm realizing that like as we're talking about this now, I, I have no problem preaching the word, but reading it out loud Mm -hmm. So that, that I, I'm reflecting in that and going, okay, yep. 
You know, there's there maybe there's moments of resent. I I think I resent when people helpfully say, "Oh, you know, you should really read that a lot before you go get up there." Yeah, they're doing <laughs> they're, they're they're doing that to you when they say that. Yeah, yeah. So you're feeling some anger over that. Yeah. 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 So that, yeah. And, and that's one of the things. It's like, okay, you know, in that moment of like, you know what? Yeah, this is this is something I struggle with. Mm-hmm. This is that grounded understanding. Don't let that. My feelings towards that person. Mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. Walk with the Lord. Mm-hmm. But, but as you're talking about that, I'm like, oh, okay, that's yeah. why that makes. Yeah. Like, yeah I'm, I'm fine for a half an hour preaching, but that those. Like three, three minutes, minutes before, minutes. where you're reading, you're like, here we go again, God. I've got these hot sweats. Yes, 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 yes. Does your congregation know about the dyslexia? Does the congregation know? Are they aware? Oh, I, I, I say it often. Okay. They just know just simply by my reading. Yeah, they laugh, but yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're, they're gentle. I don't yeah. think anybody's laughing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like, Thank you. I like your solution. My wife suggested that too. Yeah. One of the um, problems with the COVID situation, according to our pastor, is that the pastors around him are all so lonely. Yep. He's working at trying to help that. Yep. Yeah, so um, I do this professionally, and then I have friends, and I'm in the EPC. You know what my loneliness meeting in the month is? No, it's a group of senior pastors in our denomination. And that's not indicting to them, because when pastors get together, they're so afraid of going below the line and being needy. And so what we do is we keep it at like mask and frustration and sermon series and we do a little bit. But the, o- the only way to talk about like get after this is somebody to cannonball in and get people together and talk about their loneliness. And How do we as a congregation support hmm. our Some of this. Yeah. Help your pastor see neediness as a gift. I keep on asking him like, well, hey, what do you need? And he's like, I need like more time to prep, prep a sermon to go, what, what, what's beyond that? You know, it just takes time. It's about, see, this is the deal. It's not meeting needs. It's about actually healthy attunement and attachment. Uh, one thing I had to do in my church too, and this is new for me, because I was taught like, and I'm great at metaphors. So I, usually my introduction's really good and I spend too much time there. And then my conclusion's like, let's just get done. I'm tired, <laughs> honestly. Um, but what I've been doing is, um, uh, we're, we're preaching a book called um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Phenomenal book, worth getting. And what I've been telling them, uh, we talked about the friendship of Christ, and I go, hey, like sometimes you preach out of, uh, you have a got this and you're given the gold. Sometimes pastors preach and it's kind of gross because they're kind of grasping for it. They want it to be true. And sometimes you preach because you're kind of along the path and like wanting this to be true. Like, will you journey with me a little bit of me wanting it? And that's really vulnerable for me, being an Enneagram 3, but they were attuned to me in that. So that means I got freedom to like be myself in the place and not have the right the, all the right theology locked down. I can kind of show up where I am, like rehumanizing the space. So that's one thing, too. Like We tell our pastors, like, hey, your sermon is like a crayon drawing, and all you're bringing to the congregation is your crayon drawing that week. Will we just be a little messy with it? Will you be okay with it? Will you be human in it? Anything else to add, Josh? Sorry, he, Josh has walked along some of this too, and about helping pastors with some of this. Yeah, I do think that I am. I am a lot of times loneliest with people who have um, platformed um, occupations because they they're not able to distinguish between the the function they're performing and the person they are. Um, and the most effective pastors I've ever seen are the ones who can do that. You like, they have uh, robust friendships and they can share themselves and they can be in process. That's probably the hardest thing, I mean, for me. Because yeah. I'm a pastor and a performer. And so, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the one that's the left-handed swing for me up here is probably guilt, like, because I don't, I don't want to acknowledge 
add one thing. I've always encouraged uh, people in our church body. We are so quick to send uh, criticism in. So if I hear somebody say, oh, you know, I love that. It really spoke to me and stuff. I'll say, you know, send a note. Um, because, you know, I feel our pastors are human beings and thank you goes a long way. And I don't, you know, as much as we, you know, we have such high expectations, you're human and I have a relationship with my pastors and I want to treat them in yeah. a relational way. Mm -hmm. So say thank you, give you kudos, kudos, or that really touched me, or I shared that with somebody. And the times that I've done it and I've just sent like a quick email, and I honestly expected it to get lost in all their emails, and then I would get a note back. And so that just kind of started me on to say, you know, we are humans and we are in relationship and, you know, to say thank you. And I, I appreciate I, you. Yeah, I, I keep an attaboy file in my desk for Oh, I love that. But over the years, <clears throat> over the years when I've gotten notes like that, or if it's a particularly special email, I'll print it out, you know, and stick it in there. And um, I, don't, I don't dig in there very much. I couldn't tell you when the last time I've dug into that. But in the past, there were, there were times when I was just really feeling, you know, overwhelmed or just pressed. Yeah. I'd pull that stuff out, and it might be a note from five years ago or something. And it's like, you know, it, th this, this, this will pass. And what do they say? I don't know if it's a wives' tale or if it's psychological. It takes us like 30 seconds to receive a compliment. So I told a client this week, he was telling me a story. I go, you're a really like, good husband. You're in it. I just let it sit. And then tears started to well up. I go, I'm trying to believe that's true. And I made all the resistance coming up. It's part of, we don't want to, we don't want to believe like the good that's about us. So yeah, the attaboy file, like you got to ruminate on it. Because the criticism is already there. You know, like that, that, thing's a, that thing's on a hair trigger for everybody. <laughs> Cocked and loaded, ready to go. Um, Adam, one other thought. Anybody else? Loneliness for pastors. Yeah. Part of it is self-imposed. I think you know we have this thing like, oh, well, we're the Lone Ranger. You know, we got to be strong. You know, and and be the providers to the congregation. And if we show any sign of weakness mm -hmm. in any way, mm -hmm. that, that that's a chink in that armor. Yep. And and. You know, I, I've I've had pastor friends who they're like they're off in their own world doing stuff, and like we need to connect. Let's get together for lunch yeah. or something. You know, we may not have those friends, mm -hmm. that kind of a friendship among people in our congregation, mm -hmm. but at least among our colleagues. Yep. yep. And I, I just think that there's there are too many pastors who, um, for whatever reason, you know, they try to make an excuse. Well, I'm too busy. I, you know. But well, yeah. Busy, yep. You know. To, be able to take some time uh, on some kind of regular basis yep. to establish those friendships. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one thing, and, and I think what we have to do is detangle some of the shame out of that. It's a vocational liability. Like a surgeon doesn't go to the nurses after like he's at the, you know, the wash scrub and go, oh man, that surgery wasn't my best today, and I really missed that. The surgeon's not going to say that. <laughs> pastor is kind of, honestly, a pastor has a similar vocation. They can't go like, oh man, like, Five minutes in, that was some heresy. You know, hope my presbytery wasn't here. Like I'm off, or you know. And so, uh, what we say is, yes, you need to find environments of trust and environments of grace. You need to find people uh, you can do this. What's helped us, and, and we do this denominationally too, with some some guys and with a, a group I'm leading, is we teach this language. And then we create spaces for people to do some of this. So they do a feelings check-in, they respond to the feelings. And that's the whole point. It's all we're creating attunement. But then what happens here is phenomenal. Like guys are like fighting for somebody's sabbatical, like you're worth it, you need to take the sabbatical. Another pastor guy was like, hey, I noticed you have a lot of shame with your wife. Like she's a banker and you're a church planner and she's bringing all the money. And I love this, this guy was like, will you go ask your wife what it's like to be with you? That's like a hard question. Like tell me what it's like to be with you. So he goes to lunch. He doesn't want to ask a question. He's sitting there. He's like, hey, will you tell me what it's like to be with me? And he has this whole story he's got built up about himself, you know, and he's ready to get hit. And she starts crying. She's like, you're my rock. Like, you're like the emotional connection to the family. He had no idea because all his shame kept blocking it. That's what friends need to fight for. Not like sermon series, but fighting for the hearts, reminding us what's true, you know. Um, and that'll make your heart sing. 
yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, you practice that there within groups of, of people. You actually do it with the people who matter more than the people in that room. That's what we say with some of our 10-man guilds and groups. Actually, practicing this here um, so you can do this with the people who are more valuable outside of this room, like your family, you know. So I'm not advocating that, but there's spaces where you got to go below the line and be connected and say what's really going on. So, yes. And I also think, like, there, there's a huge liability in not doing that because if we don't get what we need as pastors emotionally, we'll start taking it from mm. our congregants. Yep. We will need them to behave in ways that make us feel yep. safer yep. or more connected. Uh, or protect our pride, yeah. uh, and we—that's—that's—that's that's, that's where it implodes. Yeah. Which is why I think um, the the thing that I'm really striving for and praying for and have great hope in is that pastors will begin to see their session as the seedbed for that, and then to develop those relationships there, which is I mean, Hard. high cost and very scary, super risky. But the adversarial relationship uh, among the, the shepherds in the congregation is where a lot of that loneliness comes from. Yeah, if, if a session can get some of this and do this, it becomes a powerhouse. Because yep. it's no longer auditing or adversarial. It's like we're linking arms together. And we can disagree and all that, but yeah, it's good. So Brandon, not addressing these important issues okay. and parts of your life, do you think that's what's contributed to a lot of our um, pastors in megachurches? Uh, it's, it's, well, it's hard to say. I mean, a couple things. I think, um, so I was a part of two large megachurches in Nashville, 2,000 and 8,000. And um, now I'm not part of a megachurch, and so it's a whole different story. I've, like, reversed. So I, personal experience, two things. Um, uh, the megachurch system, not the leader, the system can be very inhumane because it's like you're the professional, you're omnicompetent, you got to show up, you got to give the best, I got to always do it, and the program, so you can't bring needs. But also, like guys like me are kind of like like the megachurch because you get kicks with it, you know. And so I think it's both and. So I don't know if we've developed a megachurch where you can actually be like weak and needy yet, at least on a public scale. So I think it's kind of a perfect storm. Part of it is like really competent leaders start a church, they build a church, and then uh, they can't be known in the church, and so they flame out and burn out. And one of the pastors I was a part of um, churches, he took his own life last year, and he was a huge mega church, really influential, all that stuff. So it's a complex problem, but I think we need to have some humanity towards it too. All right, any? Uh, I want to be. My, I don't do hour and a half sessions. So any other thoughts or questions on on this, real quick? I was going to just leave you with with this tool. Uh, yeah. I got a question. I don't yeah. know if this is the yeah. right place to ask it. But like, yeah. when, I, when I see these lists and things, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But it's really hard to see it in myself. I feel like I don't have good self awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, so, as an example, like two weeks ago, uh, I traveled across the country to preach at my grandfather's funeral. It was a Saturday, mm-hmm. and my session said, Isaac, let's just get somebody to cover the, the pulpit for you on Sunday, because you're going to be coming back, and it's going to be a rough week. And I said, I'm, I'm fine. I got this. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I preached my grand... cross on my back. Right. So, I go through this, I get back into town at 1 in the morning on Sunday, and I step into the pulpit, and I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I, I just want to... Do you have any ideas about how to gain greater yeah. self-awareness yes. for these patterns of thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I would say a couple things. One, this is not caught by, you can read Voice of the Heart, you can do the study and, you know, get it, but it's actually caught in relationships. So I would encourage, um, uh, so Tin Man, we have guides all over the country and some things we do is a one-on-one. And what we begin to do is you work through the emotions and we talk through it and we practice to go through stories of hurt, but part of it's getting this language of becoming aware of what's going on inside of me. So you can practice there. That's one place. Um, uh, the other place is like pause and do feelings check-ins. So like I'm pretty active. I got a really quick mind. Sometimes I'm like, okay, before I pray, what am I feeling? Okay, I'm feeling some fear because I'm up front here. Feel a little bit of shame because my slides didn't work. Uh, lonely because uh, my, my kids are at home and I want to spend time with them and I want to be with them but I'm here you know and so I'm like checking in 
And then I'm bringing that to God too. So I'm not just bringing my mind. That's one thing to catch up with what's going on. And what we, what we love about this language, it's the lowest common denominator. As clarity goes up, overwhelm goes down. So the reason we use eight emotions, it's clear. You know, especially for like men and stuff like that. So is that helpful? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I, and just slowing down, checking in. And if you're aware of your feelings, you'll get a lot more needy. And then your prayers will be more about that too, you know. What I liked about what you said was you just took the circumstances around you and then said, okay, what, you yeah. know, in, in that circumstance, how am I feeling about that? Like yeah. your distance from your family, you know, slides mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And you're, yeah, I, I see what you're saying here that you've given words to that so you can say, okay, I've got a situation. What am I, which one of these is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where is it leading me? You know, what do I need? You know? Reminds me of the, in the recovery, you know, world hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt. Halt, yeah. Right. Halt, stop. Stop. Yep, 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 yep. I'm still kind of resonating and mulling over something Josh said. Yeah. said, I'm a pastor Yep. And when I heard that, I read my my Hebrew mind starts going. Yep. And I can perform Yep. The Greek word for that is hypocrite. Mm. Actor, pretender. Yep. And and I'm just kind of. Yeah. I'm kind of sitting right now in that comparison contrast with pastor and performer. Yeah, that's a great. Pastor is pastor is the shepherd. Pastor is living with the sheep and getting to know the sheep. The good pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Can identify when, a, when one of the layups is hurting. If you uh, if you take that image and then go back to the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, and look at how Jesus is talking about prayer in contrast to the hypocrite. All of this fits that really really well. Like me acknowledging, it's not just me saying, you know, don't be like the hypocrite, be like the, be like this. It's like, hey, like you are the hypocrite, and I'm calling you into something else. And that's, we're especially vulnerable to that when our, our, our jobs are dependent on being platformed. Right. Yeah. Also, I'd say, um, when this comes in, and you see it scripturally, when shame comes in, we perform for our identity and worth. We hustle for it. It's also called like works righteousness a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it, it, just, it just comes out differently in, pa- in pastoral ministry. I'm hustling for my worth. So I'm standing there going, are you okay with me? Do you see how hard I'm working? And that becomes freaking exhausting. That's why pastors should come out. So part of the work is moving from like shame-based identity to secure identity. Like I'm in Christ. I'm enough. Even though I'm limited, he is with me. And we use all the words around it, but that's experiential. Like the elevator's got to drop. We say here, but in the limbic brain. Like um, I'm convinced, it's a book called Renovated, Jim Wilder, Dallas Willard, he talks about salvation as secure attachment. It's not just like an intellectual category, it's God attaching to his people and coming with his people. Like secure, safe relationship. That's felt in the limbic brain. Trust, yeah, I mean all of it's yeah, integrated in that way. Yeah, yeah, abide in me, like, that's not intellectual language connected you know like again you see it and you'll see the limits of like rational enlightenment on the text and it'll deepen it it won't like erode it it'll just deepen it okay i'm kind of off cuff right now um i have seen my session do this to my pastor Mm. um two or three pastors in a row Mm -hmm. where um he he's am i performing well enough or they say well, I think you could do a little better. Mm-hmm. Or, no, I haven't seen you out hustling lately. What am I paying you for? Yep. You know what that is? If I was your pastor, I'd feel lonely, shame, and fear. Because you can't be with me. So now I'm performing for you. In every session meeting, I'm afraid you're going to hold up some sort of Simon Cowell American Idol card, like 8.5 this week. As opposed to going like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, you didn't, it, being with you in it. Yeah, there's probably a whole lot of loneliness for your pastor. They're getting better. Yeah. 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 That was my last church. 
Yeah, uh, the only way you can uh, change your session is you get over your codependency. You're like, I'm okay even though I don't need their approval. And then things will start to change. It's, it's not like teaching this and then part of it's like moving past some of that. Like, it's not a technique, but stuff like that can help. Uh, all right, I'm happy to, to talk and engage. I got a lot of passion and anger over this. I felt like I just gave you a tip of the iceberg on some of it. Um, but I'm happy to talk more about it as well. Uh, thanks for coming and engaging. I really appreciate the, the give and take as well and the facilitation. I'd rather be doing that. Uh, I would just say this, what resonated, and write that down for you. Don't lose that when we come into like the flow and all that. And the second thing is, GA is full of activities and it's great, um, but the best benefit of GA is you can actually be known out there, so I encourage you to be known with somebody you know. Don't just talk shop, go a little level deeper. Maybe try some of this out, you know. Be a giraffe on ice, let me pray. Uh, God, we're grateful. Uh, we're grateful that you're fully human, fully divine. God, we're thankful for Jesus where we see uh, your holiness and your beauty. We see your loneliness and your anger. God, we pray as pastors and as leaders. Uh, you meet us in our needs. I pray that you make us more aware of our needs. Make us embrace our needs and our humanity. God, and give us rest and peace knowing that you are with us even as we go out this day. Amen.